Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 63 for July MMXIII. Episode 63 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Are you going to wear that sissy thing? It's called a life jacket. Oh, I don't need one. Prepare to come about. Ah! Help! Gotcha! a lifesaver. You know, life jackets good protection. Yeah, like seatbelts in a car. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are October's Backroll number 24 and Birds of Prey number 24, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, welcome everyone. This is sort of the summer of podcasting co-hosts and guest stars, and I'm excited for my second one. I've got Ed with me. Uh, Hey, Ed. Hey, how's it going, Stella? It's going well. So I do, I like to sort of get to know my co-hosts here. And I was wondering, can you give us a little background on your history with comics? Uh, You know, how you got into them? And and what's your history with um, maybe the Batman family uh, specifically? Uh, Yeah, I guess I'm an an old-time comic book fan. Uh, I was thinking about this first I remember getting was um, Shogun Warriors by Marvel back in like 79 or 80. And it was from a, a gas station near my grandparents' 
home and um you know it was on the spinner rack and yeah. I remember getting it and um thinking about how cool it was and then you know I was I guess I was pretty much a Marvel kid there for a long time but then I around the time of crisis on infinite earth I started reading a lot of DC and got into the new um the new reboots of everything um you know I read Dark Knight, I guess, was really my... Dark Knight and uh, Batman Year One were kind of my first introductions to Batman comics. I had seen the um, Super Friends and the Batman TV show when I was a youngster, but that was kind of my first real introduction. And I really hate to say it, but my first, I guess, introduction to comic books with Barbara Gordon was The Killing Joke. So Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, since then, I've... I, you know, I've gone back, and I really like a lot of the, um, you know, I'm, I've gotten to a more of a Silver Age and Bronze Age fan, because, you know, I just like, you know, I want my comics to be kind of silly and fun and, mm-hmm. you know, not, you know, really dark and brooding. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a place for it, but, you know, when I'm reading a comic, I want it to be fun. Yeah, yep. Now, uh, did, did you see Man of Steel? Yes. Did you enjoy Man of Steel? I really enjoyed it. I mean, even though I just said that I don't want my things dark and brooding, I thought it was I thought it was a really good um portrayal. You know, it was a different portrayal of Superman. Um but I think in one way it's almost more keeping with the original Superman um from the 30s where, you know, he was you know, it's when you think about it, you know, being Superman, that's all that's a lot of things, you know, he's super powerful, you know, and it has to, you know, cause some problems. And I I like the special effects. I like the acting, except for didn't really like Amy Adams' as, um, Lois Lane. I thought, I don't know, she just, I guess I want my Lois Lane to have dark hair. And yeah. she seemed a little too um, starstruck or almost like a teenage girl with him. And, you know, Lois is supposed to be a little t- tougher, but I thought it was a good movie, and um, I really enjoyed the effects. I thought that this was one of the few times where you really can see the damage that a couple of Kryptonians fighting would cause. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hopefully the next movie, I guess, well, hopefully you've heard this uh, news that the next, the sequel, will be sort of a world's finest with Superman and Batman. What do you think about this? Um, we were actually talking about that, a guy at work and I today, and, you know, there's so many good Superman, Batman stories out there. You know, it's, they can, they have so many things they can pick and choose from. And I like this Superman, you know, I, I like the actor. I think he does a good job. Um, I know a lot of people were critiquing it saying that it lacked humor, but I mean, I thought, you know, it had some funny parts and mm-hmm. you don't really think of Superman a lot as you know, a humorous guy. So, you know, and Batman, you know, they were saying, you know, my friend was asking me who I thought would be a great Batman. And I was like, well, you know, on paper, I thought George Clooney was going to be a great Batman. And <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. So who knows? Yeah. I mean, and I, I trust him and I'll probably be there opening weekend. So were you disappointed that the sequel it's not just going to be superman sequel but we've got to throw batman in there or do you think that's okay i think it's fine um you know there were i like the easter eggs in the movie where like the satellite was wayne tech and yeah 
that there was the LexCorp, um, I guess, uh, trucks, and there yeah, were a few other yeah. things. So, you know, they're already showing us that this is the DC universe. And to me, if they said it a couple years after this movie, it almost kind of goes with what they kind of say is, well, how pre-Flashpoint Earth 2 was that Superman was the first and he kind of inspired a whole generation of heroes. So if they go with something like that, I think that, you know, it would work out real well and be a good one other superheroes as it kind of goes on. So Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting news. I think we were slightly shocked to hear it at San Diego, but um, I look forward to it. I'm a little nervous about it, but I look forward to it. So final question, uh, Wolverine is coming out this week. Are you, are you going to see it? Or are you excited about that movie? I probably actually will go see it because I'm like saying, you know, I'm, I'm an old timer and I remember reading the first Wolverine miniseries that this is kind of loosely based on. And, um, you know, that was a good story. Um, and while the first Wolverine movie wasn't great, I don't know, to me, Hugh Jackman does a good Wolverine, and he's not, you know, so I don't know if I'll see it opening weekend, but mm-hmm. I'll probably go see it, especially I've got a nine-year-old son, so, you know, it's pretty easy to get him to want to see any superhero movie. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to read the Frank... I, I've actually never read it before, so I'm going to read the uh, the Miller story, hopefully before I see it. I normally see it sort of uh, midnight or first day, but this weekend is my big race event thing, so I don't think it would be a good idea to sleep-deprive myself and then go off to that, so <laughs> I'll see it next week. Uh, sacrifices must be made. Um, yeah, I'm... I'm- trying to decide when I should go see Pacific Rim and if I should see it this weekend. Because like oh, I said, yeah. started out with Shogun Warrior, so big robots finding stuff always has like a soft place in my heart. <laughs> yeah, I hear mixed reviews. Some people say it's awesome and other people say that it's awful. So you'll have to <laughs> let me know how it is. Uh, I will. Uh, you know, that kind of, I guess, goes into our review there were some that were good and some that were kind of awful. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, you betcha. Yeah, so nice segue there. We can we can get started with the reviews, um, and of course we'll get started with the old ones first. And we're still continuing with this Batgirl Barbara Gordon murderer line. And so first up, we have Detective Comics four ninety eight, the Tightening Web, and the cover date was January nineteen eighty one. Writer Carrie Burkett, artists Jose Delbo and Joe Giella, letterer Albert de Guzman, and colorist Jean D'Angelo. And also included in this issue was Night of the Savage featuring Batman. So Babs, she's sitting in a cell in a nice gray jumpsuit slash dress, which I was wondering about, uh, despairing over her lot. The others that know her contemplate whether or not she is guilty. Suddenly, her current love interest, and now attorney for whatever reason, Jim Dover tells her that he arranged bail to be released uh, in the custody of her father. As soon as she sees her father, she questions his whereabouts, and he explains that he received a phone call wherein the caller had info on Babs that he wouldn't want getting around, and he should meet the mystery caller at Skinner's Bar. He went to meet the black mailer, but the person did not show up. 
Babs deduces that this call must have come around the same time as she was talking to Detective Cameron, and she believes it must have been one of her co-workers, given that only a co-worker would have access to her desk in order to plant the pill bottle that we had seen in the previous issue. Jim leaves. Uh, Gordon comments that he seems like a good man, and Babs says she needs to solve the case before going to trial. Otherwise, she will either have to confess she is Batgirl or lie when trying to explain why she went up to the congressman's office. As she swings out as Batgirl, she contemplates how many people in her office could do such a thing. She decides to go to the district attorney's office and listen in on the conversation between the ADA Turner and Jim Dover. At the office, there is a close friend of the murdered congressman, Randall Borowitz. He tells Jim that Scanlon was evaluating the program of humanities research and development and was recommending massive cuts in HRD's federal funding. This would have meant the end of Babs' job. The ADA also gives Jim a purchase order for the same type of poison that killed Scanlon, uh, and this was signed by Babs, so all, point, all signs point to her, and it's not good. Believing this is a forgery, Batgirl decides to investigate, and to her horror, discovers that it is actually her signature. She realizes that she could have signed it without looking too closely as a routine stock order, and the only person who could have set that up is her assistant-slash-one-time friend, Doreen Gray. Batgirl catches Doreen on the phone trying to back out of this whole plan because she was only helping with the blackmail. She didn't want Babs to get into trouble for murder. Batgirl confronts her and Doreen explains that her brother is in prison and the commissioner would be forced into setting him free if she cooperated in establishing the phony evidence. When she heard Babs was arrested, she didn't want to continue with the meat. Batgirl asks who is behind it all. Doreen doesn't know, but before she can even continue, two perps burst in with guns. Batgirl is able to dispatch the two, but a third unseen perp holds Doreen at gunpoint, and Batgirl is pistol-whipped from behind. Elsewhere, Jim asks Gordon where Babs is because the judge has called a meeting in two hours, and if she doesn't show, the case is lost. To be continued, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Uh, so so we're continuing off of this ba- Barbara Gordon murderer. Uh, so what are your initial thoughts on this particular issue, Ed? Um, you know, I thought it was kind of, I don't know, to me a little, I guess, heavy-handed on how everything was, you know, pointing towards Barbara being the killer. I mean, yeah. we all, I mean, you know, especially at this time, we know she wouldn't have done it. You know, maybe if it was the 1990s, you'd see it. But, I mean, you know, at this time, you knew Barbara wasn't going to do it. So you sort of were like, you know, it's almost, I guess the mystery almost seems to be like, well, who, you know, who knows enough to do all this? You know, I kind of like these overall, these second features in the uh, detective books. It's a good second story, and I've always liked that. Um Though I think the only problem is they're kind of they force the writer into these um, cliffhangers that, and since they don't have that large a page, uh, page count, it just you know sometimes it feels forced. And I don't know this whole uh, Barbara Gordon this storyline I haven't been a big fan of, but 
Yeah, it's well, it's been a while since we've had such a long story because this is about to go into four parts, basically. And we even had threads, like little panel threads, uh, continuing beyond that. So this is the first time that we've had a, a long story. But it's not really, yeah, I agree with you that it's not the best. And certainly all of these, like the pill bottle and the, the poison order, like all these things pointing to her, it seems so convenient. Uh, I was also a little turned off just the fact that, you know, we introduced a character basically in the previous issue, uh, Doreen, and then all of a sudden we find out that she's no good. And, and this has happened before, like in Hush, Batman Hush, you get this new yeah. guy, and then, like, you basically automatically think, well, there's this new guy, there's this new villain, he's gotta be the, you know, the main person. And it happened again in, in uh, the Night of the Owl stuff with Snyder. It's a lot like, you know, when you were going over... Well, no, I guess that was another Batman podcast I was listening to. They were, sorry, they were talking about the same kind of thing. It's like you pretty much know who the villain is going to be because yeah. it's the new inner person they introduce. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just sort of convenience. Also, Jim Dover, I mean, when did he ever say he was a lawyer? I was a little shocked by that. It just seems like it came out of nowhere and now he's helping her out. I'm glad we finally learned what Gordon was doing when he was missing because in the previous issue it said, you know, stay tuned to figure out where he was. So that's good that they they wrapped it up. But, you know, I, I guess we'll have to see how this is all wrapped up. What would you give it uh, out of 10? I mean, it, it wasn't that bad of a story and compared to, you know, I, I hate to kind of show my hand now, but compared to some of the stories now, mm. you know, it was a fun read. Um, I'd probably give it about six. Okay. You know, it, it's probably one of those where if you had all the stories put together and could read them kind of back to back, it, the story would probably be a little better. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, if I was, you know, and I was buying Batman and Detective at this time. In fact, I had um, Detective 500. So, <laughs> um, you know, I would have been happy to read this and, you know, not felt cheated or anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just go one step higher and say a seven. Uh, I think the previous ones were around this or a little higher, but just a lot of convenient things that happen. So let's let's hope. Let's see how it, it's all wrapped up in the next one. All right. So next one, Detective 499, February 1981. Uh, the name of it is Chains of Guilt. And um, the when on the first page... Chains is written in chains, which I thought was kind of cute. Yeah. Writer, Carrie Burkett. Artist, Jose Gilano. Um, letterer, uh, John Constantine. And colorist, Jean uh, D'Angelo. I don't know if you noticed, but in the last um, issue, the bar that Commissioner Gordon was going into, the name of it, it was yeah. the uh, Levitt's Bar. Oh, yeah. And this one, the warehouse on the first page is Levitt's Warehouse. And, of course, uh, Paul Levitz was the editor at the yeah. time. So, you know, a little, you know, little thing there. Mm -hmm. Or he's got stuff all over town. Okay, we start with um, the episode with Batgirl in Chains and two of the um, guys from the last episode pushing her to the end of a dock. And she's coming up and saying, what, I'm trapped? Can't get free? You know, to me... The next episode, uh, the next page, you see them, you know, kind of saying, well, what are we supposed to do? And they say, well, we don't have any orders on what to do with Batgirl. We had orders for uh, Dorian, so let's just get rid of her permanently. So they throw her into the bay. Now, I don't know about you, but um, 
you know, if I was a criminal and I had captured one of the, the bat family, wouldn't you want to take off their um, cow to see who it is? Yeah, one would think. You know, I mean, even and these guys must be the most, you know, professional because, you know, they're saying we didn't have any orders about what to do. So they just get rid of her. I mean, I would want to see who it was, you know, because these are, you know, so. But so she goes into the um, she goes into the bay. Then we flash over to the home of Commissioner Gordon, where he's talking um, to Jim there. And they're talking about hey, if she doesn't show up for this pretrial hearing. You know, the chances in court may be damaged beyond repair. Mm-hmm. And then, well, I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, I think, I don't know, there's a problem with the coloration, I think. Because um, the first page is, it looks like night to me. I don't know about you, but I know Gotham's a pretty dark place, but the first couple of pages look like it's pretty dark. And then he says, we've got an hour and a half left before we meet the judge. So... Just remember that. Next, we go to um, Batgirl floating down, well, going down to the bottom, and she sees a rock sticking up. And I'm thinking, okay, it's chains. There's no way you can cut chains with the rock, which I was thinking, you know, like rope cutting the whole trick. But what she does is she uses it to pop open part of um, her uh, utility belt and pulls out a mini laser torch. Again, going back, you know, if you're not going to take off the cow and see who this is, would you at least take the utility belt? These criminals are not really thinking. But yeah, no. she makes it out. She makes it up to the surface and says, I think maybe one of the great quotes of this issue, utility belt, gasp, I love you. Huh? So she gets uh, on the dock. She's trying to figure out what's going on. So she makes her way back and I'm taking, I'm guessing that, and I was a little uh, confused here, but she's, I can't tell, is she at Detective Cameron's or is she at the DA office? I don't recall offhand, I, actually. I couldn't, I couldn't really tell, but either way, she was there and she was looking at reports to try to figure out who did the phony evidence. And she sees a note that says the pretrial hearing's at 2 o'clock. So... If it's 2 o'clock and it was an hour and a half before, this is about a little afternoon. And it looks pretty dark, so either Gotham smog is so bad <laughs> that it looks like all the time, or they're running court 24 hours a day, which I'm in Gotham might be a thing. Now, also, and I know I'm nitpicking, but this is the worst for me not to tell his client when the uh, trial was. She has to figure it out by looking at a piece of paper in someone else's house. But on her way out, she realizes, if I, go to, if I don't go to court, our case is lost. But if I skip, that's the only way I can save my friend Dorian. So which is she going to face? She goes to save her friend. So she goes to this crime boss's home, which um, is so 1970s. <laughs> it's great. Um, she sneaks in. We get a little panel showing Commissioner Gordon and um, Jim saying, well, we can't wait any longer. We've got to go. But says, um, you know, her attorney says that the judge is always late, so maybe Babs will, I mean, Barbara will, you know, luck out and the judge will be late. So I thought that was kind of humorous. Back to the crime boss, the um, criminal C, uh, Batgirl through the window. She swings in, attacks, lots of good fighting and knocking people down. 
Dorian says, you know, Batgirl, it's you, you're alive. So, you know, obviously she thought that they had killed her during the uh, capture. You know, Barbara says that now that's why I call knocking yourself out on a job. Tie them up. There's something I have to do before we leave here. So we don't, we're not really sure what it is. Next panel, we see Gotham Courthouse. Um, the judge apparently got there on time and uh, heard uh, Batgirl's attorneys apologizing that she, that Barbara's not there. When Batgirl runs into the court with evidence and says the proceedings, um, the case should be dismissed against Barbara Gordon. Proceedings should begin against the real murderer, Mr. Randall Borwitz. And you see a guy, what? This is an outrage. He was my friend. Well, she pulls out the um, evidence and shows the judge. These ledgers prove that Borowitz was uh, diverting federal funds from his government agency directly into his own businesses. The congressman discovered his setup and planned to uh, cut all federal funding and transfer the humanities and research development. So he killed him to uh, protect his, well, I guess, embezzling and put the phony case against Barbara Gordon. And, of course, you know, we get the, you can't prove this. And Barbara says, I have a witness who testify how he used her to frame Barbara Gordon and then kidnapped her to silence her. So we see that uh, Dorian's turned out good. Mr. Hor Borowitz looks like he's making a run for it. And what does Jim do? He throws his briefcase and knocks him down. So I guess there's no bailiffs in this court. <laughs> And um, then we get a gray panel of him, Borowitz, not me, not, no, not guilty. And then um, everyone turns around, Batgirl's gone. But then Barbara comes in. And, you know, it's like, where have you been? And then we get a monologue of Commissioner Gordon saying, you did it, Barbara. You cleared yourself. You know, you solved the case. And then after this, how long do you think it will be before Jim begins to suspect that you and Batgirl are the same? Yeah. The end for now. For now, yeah. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this issue now that we've, we've wrapped up Barbara Gordon, murderer? Is this um, a fitting wrap-up? Well, I guess I was a little snarky in my comments. Um, you know, there were some things I thought were... These were some really bad criminals that she was working against. They just, you know, they didn't really seem to, um, they didn't seem to really want to do their job right. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought it was, I thought it was kind of a good uh, ending. You know, I, you get, you know, you get it wrapped up good. They're, you know, the person who did it, it makes sense. Um, Dorian is um, kind of redeemed. And, um, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Like I said, the only problems I have are the criminals don't seem to really have much initiative, and the coloration made. And I guess you know, and or Bat Family book, so you kind of assume things are at dark, but it doesn't work with the timetable. But I guess you know, those are small things to overlook. But I really, I liked it. I thought it was a good ending for the whole story, and I would probably give it. I'm going to go with about an eight. Okay. Yeah, I, I certainly picked out, you know, the fact that they failed to remove the utility belt. That's like the first thing you need to go for. And that, I mean, that was ultimately her salvation. And, and right. 
getting out of the situation. I do wonder, you know, why isn't Batman around when all this stuff is going on uh, to come and, and help Jim because issues pass when when Alfred came to him teary-eyed and said that Barbara Gordon was dead. You know, Batman was right there at Jim's doorstep. So I'm surprised that he hasn't read in the paper that Barbara Gordon is being charged with murder and he's not there. So I do wonder what he's doing. You know, some weird things. Jim doesn't question her father further about why he let Babs go, where she is. You know, Jim just answers and says she had some, or, well, her father just answers and says, you know, she had some things to do, and he, Dover, just says, oh, okay. Um, And you kind of want him to question more. So even if Gordon thinks that he'll put two and two together about Barbara and Batgirl being one and the same, I don't know if he dismisses this so quickly. Uh, I really like Jim throwing that briefcase, just like a champ, you know, taking down Borowitz. Uh, it definitely gave me Jason Bard flashbacks. And I wonder how long this relationship is actually going to last. So I'm on, you know, the edge of my seat with anticipation. And then Borowitz, uh, again, we recently met him. Basically, he turned into a bad guy. We just introduced him in the previous issue, and here he is. But I think there are a lot of other questions, like how other players uh, came into this. Detective Cameron, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Because remember, he wanted to sort of get back at Commissioner Gordon, and you don't really know why. Or no, the ADA was the one who had a grudge against Gordon. So potentially Detective Cameron was okay. Uh, But then, I don't know. It just seems like we have a piece of the mystery, even though it's been solved. But there's still other sort of dangling questions and, and pieces of the story that aren't really wrapped up. Ah, so, I don't, yeah. You know, there's some suspense and action and and mystery. I think this is one issue that Babs seemed perplexed for a great deal of it. So, you know, that's a change. And it was a pretty reasonable ending. Uh, But, again, there just seemed to be some forgotten things about it i, I kind of give it an equal equal grade of a seven with the other issue it had its good things and its bad things but I, i'm ready for barbara to to get over this this bad rap and and move on to new and hopefully better stories yeah and i mean you know you also i guess one thing i thought about is you know this is you know the, the daughter of you know, police commissioner, you would think that there'd be a little more hoopla about. Yeah, yep. And former congressperson, and, mm-hmm. you know, so you would, you know, today we would have, you know, like wall-to-wall coverage with Nancy Grace and everything, and you would think that there would be some, yeah, not like she'd just be like, oh, she's going to go run some errands. She'll be back later, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Seems wrong. Very, very wrong. Well. Simpler yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Yeah, compared to now. Uh, well, when we come back, we're going to review maybe the spectacular, maybe the awful background number 21 and Birds of Prey number 21. But right now we've got Zias's Radio Hour featuring I'm Your Puppet by James and Bobby Purify. See you soon.
So, Ed, have you been reading uh, The Back Row Run, and uh, do you enjoy it if, if you have been reading it? Um, I started out when uh, the new 52 were released getting the first, you know, com- like three or four issues of everything with the bundles that they had. At, um, oh, yeah. So, you know, I hate to say it, but, like, I read it all, you know, and there was good and there was bad and you know, I was really hoping, you know, Bad Girl was one of the ones I figured was going to be on my regular pull list. And I kept up for probably the first year or so, but I just, I didn't like it. Yeah. You know, it, I was a big Stephanie Brown fan. Yeah. I thought, I thought she was fun. I mean, it was, you know, I loved her interaction with Damien mm-hmm. and, you know, and it, she was just, it was a fun, it was a fun bat book. You know, it, you didn't, it wasn't all so dark and brooding, and it was, you know, it was fun. I else known I liked all of her books before, but this one, I don't know. Like you said in some of the earlier, you know, if it was just, if it's just been too much pressure on her, but these stories just haven't, haven't clicked, and I haven't, I haven't liked Barbara Gordon, and I haven't really liked Batgirl. I mean, I just, there's nothing in it that makes me, really want to root for the person yeah. you know so i haven't i haven't really been keeping up with it as much you know i read them when they kind of correspond with some of the other books i read but yeah it just and it, and it was one of those i was kind of really sad it wasn't as good as i was hoping it would be mm-hmm. so since you've read other gail simone stuff would you say that it, it seems like she's just a completely different writer in this book compared to other things that you've read of hers yeah, I, I mean, I, one of the things I really like about her, and, you know, this was in Six and some of the other stuff, that there's kind of a, always a little fun, you know, there's little things that, even when it's suspenseful, will make you kind of laugh. And in, and it's not, and it's not in a cheesy way, um, which I think is kind of pushed into Birds of Prey now. You know, it's kind of natural, and she had a good feeling for what the characters were, and, you know, she made characters likable. I mean, you know, I liked Huntress, you know, and I would read earlier Huntress and mm-hmm. she wasn't, you know, I didn't dislike her, but she wasn't one of my favorites. But, you know, after all that, I liked Huntress. And, you know, taking Stephanie Brown, who in all the earlier incarnations of Spoiler and everything was kind of really kind of almost annoying you know she became one of my favorite uh, you know characters in the whole dc universe and like i said her interactions with damien you know the one and i can't remember the episode where she's talking to the boys and they say something like you know your little friend from the omen and you see just like the stark white and the tree and him standing there you know it's like this is perfect and you know, I would have liked to have seen that continue, but the good thing about comics is things can change with new writers and everything so quickly. So if you don't like something, later on it'll probably change. But maybe she just needs to step away from this and go back to something that isn't so um, that people don't expect so much out of. Yeah. Well, let's see what uh, Backroll Twenty One holds in store for us. Okay, um, I'll I'll preface this by saying like I I haven't been reading, you know, all the Batgirl runs, so some of this is a little new to me. And 
Um, I will also say that on a personal level, I like the ventriloquist in the Batman animated series. Oh, yes. But ventriloquists and puppets personally freak me out. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so that, um, that being said, we've got Batgirl 21, uh, cover date August 2013. So we got Gail Simone as the writer, Jonathan uh, Glampton Inks, Taylor Espin- Espinito, uh, letterer, Fernando Pesarin pencils, blonde colors, Alex Gardner cover. You know, I will say one thing that I really liked about this was the cover. As I just said, I'm kind of freaked out by ventriloquist dummies. Yeah. And this cover I thought was really good. We start out really good, I think. We get um, get a full page of Nightwing, and we get the um, discussion between him and Barbara where it was obviously a um, phone call. And I don't remember this back when I was reading how they – would color things differently for different characters. And I mean, I guess the first time I really paid attention to it was in Identity Crisis. But I really like that as a as a, a storytelling tool because it helps me, you know, remember who's talking. Dick is, you know, telling that he's uh, there to help. And through the next couple pages, we have um, going on at the same time, uh, Nightwing fighting some criminals where Barbara is um, sitting in bed and, you know, they're talking about the um, death of her brother. And I use that term loosely because, well, and um, one thing I don't like is I don't like this artist's um, way he's drawing Barbara. Uh, Later on in the issue, when we see her mom, at first I didn't realize it was her mom. I thought they were the same. You know, it's, it's not a, and I don't even want to say flattering. It's not a good portrayal. It kind of almost looks clay face-ish. Her face is just kind of, I don't know, I didn't like it. I really, though I liked the beginning of this, I thought it was good how, um, you know, she's having trouble and Dick's, you know, fighting but still caring about her. And, you know, he tells her that, you know, I don't want to lose you. Come back to help us. And she said, you know, I want to, Dick. Uh, well, Richard, with all my heart, but no one can help me right now. Goodbye. And he's talking about, you know, that we're still f- uh, family. Mm-hmm. She immediately hacks into her father's um, computer. And next thing you know, you see um, her getting out. Um, you know, I guess there's a little, in my mind, you know, a little gratuitous shot there of her taking her clothes off and putting them on, which I don't know, kind of not necessary. But, you know, going out, her um, roommate, you know, she's all, I'm off to the gym. Uh, Babs, sure, you don't want to watch a scary movie? Oh, oh, honey, I'm sorry, your brother, I didn't think. It's okay. Uh, we haven't watched one together in forever besides. So you see her um, heading out in the, um, on well, I guess the Batgirl cycle, heading out and, you know, doing a little monologue talking about the ventriloquist. I listened to your podcast last month where you talked about her backstory. And, you know, to me, it seems, it seemed a little, yeah, it wasn't fleshed out well. You know, it's, it's just like, oh, she's a troubled girl and she finds a dummy and 
she poisons a bunch of people. You'd think that somebody would see this. Um, so she's out. Then we get to the part where I couldn't tell that that was the mother because mm-hmm. it looked exactly like Barbara. Yeah. You know, you've seen um, Commissioner Gordon all shirt untucked, looking like, you know, almost like he's a drunk, but <laughs> I didn't like that either. Then it starts going downhill. Uh, as soon as we get to the home where you know, the ventriloquist is, yeah, this isn't a – the book, I guess, was rated T for teens, but I don't know <laughs> if I would even let a teen read this. This is yeah, just – Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, this is just – I know I wouldn't I – you know, I let my son read a lot of my comics, but no, he wouldn't see anything like this. Again, this is one of the things I don't like with the ventriloquist is I can never, you know – Well, I know you're not supposed to know if the dummy's really alive or what, but Mm -hmm. this is just getting a little confusing. Um, You know, we've got dead bodies around. It's dark. It's nasty. Though the house on the outside looks fine. There's a guy walking his dog. The girl's uh, locked up, and, you know, she's pleading for help. The dummy's like, um, shame to kill her, Shauna. She ain't a bad looker. Little meeting up for my taste. Hate to mess up all that good surgery. So, um, yeah, we can see that the dummy's probably, you know, kind of a little like a little Andrew Dice Clay. But everything's so dark and uh, shadowy. You know, some of the panels, I can't really tell. It's a little hard to tell what's going on. I'm really afraid that we're going to have some kind of inappropriate behavior between the ventriloquist dummy and the uh, girl. And I'm hoping... That, you know, as I was reading, I was hoping that wasn't going to happen because we don't need that kind of cheap thing. And all of a sudden, we get uh, Barbara getting in there. And how does she find the house? DMV files. So we're to take that um, a major, well, a criminal in training is just going to, you know, have their hideout in their house and have the records with the DMV. But the house... On, um, I guess it's page 11, you know, it's pretty nasty. She says, you know, this is worse than filth. This feels like disease. She's using light in her glove. I guess the back glove has a light. And then all of a sudden, she um, sees some dead bodies. She realizes that the ventriloquist is, as she says, a fan of murder. This is where I kind of was getting lost. Um so she's being attacked by what looks like dead people. Yeah, um, her par- you know. it's uh, Ventriloquist or Shauna's parents. Right. So now dead, yeah. So I'm guessing, you know, that this is a power that we're not used to. It it did have a good panel where the uh, it's a butcher knife cutting off part of uh, Batgirl's red hair, mm-hmm. and then um, you know we see. The next couple pages, just more fighting and disgusting, blood splattering, you know, just, I mean, I don't know. I just wasn't really good. You know, she says, you know, my God, these people, these poor, poor people. We see uh, the ventriloquist holding a knife to girl's neck and the dummy, um, Ferdy, is out there. You know, time to work your magic, Ferdy boy. You kill her, you understand, you don't touch her unless to draw blood. So the ventriloquist is, 
you know, not only crazy, a killer, but I guess a controlling girlfriend, too. Um, and she threatens her with special time with the belt sander. So didn't really think that that would be a Gail Simone joke. But we see Batgirl going through the house. And this house must be huge. I mean, on the outside, it doesn't look that big, but it's huge. There's so many rooms. She gets to a stage. The lights come on. Ferdy's there, and he says, ooh, la, la, hot stuff. You're going to make my meal ticket just as famous as all. And then he attacks her. There's fighting. I guess they never explain if these um, dummies have kind of super strength of some sorts, because if you think about their size, they shouldn't really be that powerful. Mm -hmm. He's making a lot of crude comments, calling her toots and everything. And then she um, blows him up. And uh, you could have you could have said, no, what have you done? And the ventriloquist is running at her, and she hits her with full force. Yeah. And that's it. Um, you know, that was the fight. Barbara rescues the girl, takes her out, and then we go back to Barbara's apartment where, you know, what are you going to do after you've just um, fought a crazy ventriloquist, a bunch of dead people, and... Saved a girl. Make cookies. So she's talking to her roommate. They're making cookies. And she said, I met this girl yesterday. She had great parents and she mistreated them. Sometimes it feels like all I want in the world is to have my parents back together and close by. Next to me all the time forever. And we get a little more talking. And her roommate says, it's kind of late. Let's see who it is at the door. Oh, hey, nice to meet you. Yeah, she's right here. Your date's here, Rumi, and I have to admit, I don't know who this is. <laughs> uh, it's Ricky, a guy from way back Nightfall and, and her her cronies, and they cut off that guy's leg, and then there was a Valentine's special, and Batgirl kissed Ricky twice. So here he, here he is, this new love interest, basically, that we've given Barbara Gordon, unfortunately. Yeah, so... um yeah, what what can I say? Um, I was kind of um, it started out good. I really liked the beginning part. I haven't mm-hmm. liked the storyline with her brother. Yeah, I don't know. To me, it just it does. It's got a lot of problems, and part of me being an old fanboy, you know, is like that doesn't fit the way things should be. But yeah. I just haven't liked it. But I really liked the uh, interchange between her and uh, Dick on how they. Um, you know how he was trying to comfort her so and i like the way it played out but the rest of the issue yeah i didn't like this in the fight yeah. you know it made ventriloquist look like a bad villain i mean mm-hmm. you know if i saw them again in the future books i'm gonna be like yeah so batgirl punched him out basically you know batman shouldn't even he shouldn't even have to get out of the car um so i thought that was kind of a bad way to introduce a villain and then just basically make it that easy to get rid of i thought ferdy was you know i can see where they were trying to make him be some kind of you know sexist pig but it was just (laughs) annoying and um yeah i just i didn't like all the darkness and like i said this is definitely something i won't let my son look at let alone read when i would with 
the old Batgirl run. Yeah, with Stephanie. Yeah. So do you think this violence and this darkness belongs in Batgirl? Or do you think Batgirl should be like the Stephanie Brown run and be sort of the the light to the Bat family darkness? I think I think it should be. I think I think you you know, you hit it on the head. I think that and this is my opinion, but in the Bat family you know, there's so many different aspects and there's certain roles that each person plays. We know in my, my view of it, you know, Batman is the brooding, barely holding it together kind of person. You know, mm-hmm. we know he's got all the self-control, but, you know, part of Batman is just like he's just he's close to the edge. And, you know, I could you know, it's one of those things where, you know, he's he's not completely stable. You know, he's got some problems, but he's got people like Alfred. He's got people like Dick. He's got, you know, people like the way Barbara was that are good, that can, you know, serve as his anchor points into goodness. And, you know, you don't want to say reality, but, you know, back on the good side, because, you know, Batman is just based on vengeance. And I think that, you know, I think that that's one thing that Batgirl is, that she... Well, before killing joke and all that, but I mean, she didn't have any kind of traumatic that makes her into a vigilante like Robin with Dick or, you know, any of those, you know, she chose to fight crime. And, you know, I think that that's one of the things that makes her, you know, a good person. And when you think about the people in the DC universe, you know, how many of them decide that they want to, you know, fight crime and as opposed to, you know, either they're selected to be a Green Lantern or, you know, they're, you know, they're forced to by winning an Amazon contest or, you know, whatever, you know, how many just say, I want to do this because, you know, I can make a difference. And yeah, you know, I think that that's important. And there should, you know, there should be comics for, and when I say all ages, I don't mean like Tiny Titans. Yeah. But, you know, comics that, you know, I can read, my son can read, you know, and we can enjoy this, you know, the story and not have to worry about these kind of things. You know, it's the same way with, you know, there's certain forms of entertainment where, you know, I can watch the show, he can watch the show and we both enjoy it, but it's not dumbed down, you know, dumbed down kiddie shows. So, yeah. And I think that that's a lot of times what people, you know, complain is like, oh, well, if it becomes all ages, then it's, you know, it's a kiddie show. And it's like, no, you know, it's, I'm a fan of the Rockford Files. And most of those shows I'll let my son watch. And even though that was from the 70s, you know, you can put them on today and they're good stories. You know, if it's a good story and a good storytelling method, it doesn't matter Long way around, yes. Yeah, I think that in my, if I was handling the DC universe, I would have Batgirl as one of the kind of beacons of light Mm -hmm. and not have this kind of violence and just, I mean, it's not, I mean, you know, comic books are violent because that's what superheroes do is they fighty-fighty, but, you know, this is just kind of, you know, silence of the lambs oh, gosh. going on just to see how much you can do just to make, you know, make things kind of gross. Yeah. So. I mean, and it's so violent that even Batgirl in the comic itself can't handle it and she ends up throwing up. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. 
yeah, it, it's just too much. And the and the horny little dog doll, as Donovan likes to call it, it's yeah. But you know, we're we're made to potentially care about this villain or have some sort of interest but you're right that you know she's built up and then there's this like really quick fight and basically she's thrown away in two issues now we are going to learn apparently uh her backstory is going to be flushed out more in the villains month it's going there's going to be a spotlight issue on her uh, whether or not you care about it but so we'll learn a little bit more about her but i feel like there's a better villain than than this person to to know about so that's somewhat unfortunate i agree that probably the best part of this entire issue is in fact the the introduction uh, just with the Dick and Babs interaction, uh, very on par. Um, I think their voices were really in line. It's very different from what we had seen before when Damien died, Babs called up Dick, but he was the one that sort of pushed her away and said he didn't have time for it. And then we've got Babs doing that sort of thing. But it's good to know that uh, the Bat family is still out there to care for her. I I do wonder, you know, she says she's done with everything. She's ripped off the Batgirl from her chest. Uh, Well, the Bat symbol. But then, you know, she does this complete 180 and she's happily looking up information in order to find (laughs) where Shauna could be. So that's interesting. Babs Sr. leaving town. Uh, How does this make sense? How is she even allowed to leave when she must know something about the whole James Jr. incident? And Jim just accepts uh, quite easily, in fact, that, you know, she didn't see anything. But it it just seems really odd that she's just leaving town all of a sudden when this is going down. Um, So last issue, well, in the old stuff that we did, the vintage sock, we saw that the bad guys didn't remove the the cowl or the, oh my gosh, yeah, the the utility belt. Here, I think Batgirl does a dumb thing by lighting her gauntlets up inside of the the house. Like, I never understood that. Obviously, people are going to find you easier if there's a light emanating from your person. Uh, and then, you know, we've got those spooky hands coming out of there. Um, so I do wonder about that. Exactly. You know, you brought up a good point. Just, you know, I mean, you were confused quite rightly. And and this DC New 52, the thing is that you could hop on at any point, basically, and get the gist of what's going on. And the fact that you didn't know what was going on with these, like, dead people, I mean, that just cements the fact. Because we didn't know what was going on either when we were reviewing this over on TBU. We just don't know the power set of this particular villain. And, I mean, we don't have to go. I, I just think it'd be a good idea to figure out, like, because she's got telekinesis, now all of a sudden dead people are rising. Does this doll have some special powers? Is he super strength, like you pointed out? We just don't know anything, and all these random things start happening. Uh, and then we end. I do wonder about this full force punch. Just like you said, she doesn't hold anything back when she punches her. But, I mean, this girl, the Shauna, the, the ventriloquist, she basically looks like she hasn't eaten for a month. So I wonder how she even survives that punch. And yeah. Other. <laughs> but uh, I guess she'll be in prison or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that the... You know, I will say that I thought the ventriloquist, you know, if she has, you know, a power to animate objects, mm-hmm. I think has potential to be a cool villain. Yeah. I just, and, you know, I just think the backstory we have so far is kind of, you know, silly. And I think that 
it kind of needed to be explained a little. I mean, I know mm -hmm. it's good to keep some secrets, but just yeah. even kind of somebody asking a question like, wow, can she do such and such? So you can go, oh, okay, I guess that's her doing this, but... Yeah, I feel like that's a weakness we've had all along with, with several of them, like Grotesque, uh, a villain that was uh, maybe midway through, I guess, this point. And then before we had Gretel, just not knowing a lot about the villains. But, I mean, when you create a villain, you'd think you'd have it really flushed out and everything. So that's just one of the weaknesses that I think uh, we have in this particular run of Gil Simone's. Uh, but, you know, in the end, yes, let's, after this whole nightmare and, and throwing up because of the violence of it all and decapitation and all sorts of things, Babs decides to, you know, make cookies. Uh, right. And then she, she thinks about her mom and her dad and, you know, she ultimately professes that they're basically the Ross and Rachel of the DC universe. I don't know that they belong together, but maybe the time's never right. So who knows if we will ever see Babs Sr. again. And uh, I just wonder why we even introduced her in the first place, if this is how it was all going to go down. I've got the bad feeling that she'll, you know, keep reoccurring oh, over gosh. and over. And it's going to be the same thing happen every time. She's going to come in. Everyone's life's going to be turned upside down. And then she's going to leave. Everyone's going to have, you know, all the darlings. And, and then she's going to come back. And it's just going to be one of the devices that just keeps going and going and going yeah and i mean the main reason why babs was so upset with her is that she basically abandoned the family and here we have her running out on them again right and i mean i think that that's you know i think that that's what they've made the character you know in their view to be and that's what we're going to keep getting every time mm -hmm. for good or bad you know i was fine with the 52 um reboot mm -hmm. you know to me you know i like i said i went through crisis on infinite earth and all the other instances of you know if things change you know fine with it but you know i don't know i think that you know a lot of the writers are just you know they're just trying to get everything you know kind of more and whatever but you know you don't have to do that mm -hmm. you know someone you know you can tell good stories and not have to be all like that yeah i agree uh, the final thing I have to say is uh, just Ricky showing up for this date. Uh, so we've seen him, obviously, in the Nightfall storyline. We first met him. Then there was a kiss in the alleyway that happened later. Then there was a Valentine's Day special, and there was another kiss. And so, oh, and then Babs ran into him as Barbara Gordon. But I just wonder when this whole date setup actually happened. When was Babs emotionally stable enough to set this all up because she's been basically on the a woman on the edge of a breakdown and she may have already had one uh for the previous issues when james jr died so th this is happening and i i guess i don't want to talk too much about ricky because the next issue really explores i mean it's basically them on the date so I, i'll save it for that but why ah. ricky and uh oh. <laughs> yeah stay tuned for that which i'll actually say 22 is perhaps the best issue of this entire series so far um, but I just don't like the fact that she's uh, going out with Ricky, not really her type, in my opinion. Oh, so. I kind of took it as he should, like I said, I haven't read, but I kind of took it as him just showing up, you know, to kind of, hey, I know this is in the neighborhood, maybe we can go do something. <laughs> so I didn't know if they had it planned or not. Yeah, so I think, well, she I met him, it. yeah, she met him outside of a soup kitchen. 
uh, for the first time out of her Batgirl guise. But that was basically the only time that they had that sort of interaction. But uh, later on, in the next issue, he'll ask, like, did you forget? So obviously a date okay. had been set up of some sort. But I agree that it's very, like, happenstance. And let's round off this issue in this way. So what, what grade would you give this uh, wonderful book? <laughs> Maybe a three, just because I like the first, like, ten pages. <laughs> and a I don't three, even know if I would say? go ten pages. Um, yeah. Okay. Just because I, I really like that um, exchange between uh, and her at the beginning. You know, I thought that it kind of, kind of makes me feel back to, you know, good kind of relationship. Because that was one thing I always thought that Gail Simone did good and, the you know flashpoint books was how she would explore not just romantic relationships but relationships between the characters mm-hmm. and i always thought that she did a good job of showing you know how people cared about one another and you know not just the you know lovey-dovey but just how you know some of the characters in secret six how you could tell they cared about each other even though they were you know, horrific villains and all that, but yeah, yeah, you know, especially Bane. You know, it was it was something that I thought she was good at, and to me, those pages kind of harkened back to the way she was back then. But then it went downhill so quick. Boy, did it! <laughs> One yeah, of those, uh, things that I guess I haven't reviewed. I would have just put the you uh, back in the box and said, well, you know, let's not look at that one ever again. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Let's see, the last issue, I gave it a two. And I actually really wanted to give this one a one because I saw it as worse in many, many categories. But its saving grace was, in fact, the introduction, uh, that opening scene with with, um, Dick and Babs talking. So I'll just make it an even two out of ten bats. (laughs) Uh, But it's still not good. But, uh, you know, just uh, let everyone know, the next one, number 22, is actually pretty decent, pretty good, I would say. So... At least there's a breath of fresh air in the horizon. That's good. Yeah. So our final book is Birds of Prey. And last issue I said, oh, it was outstanding. I give it a nine. So let's see if I continue and say it's just as good. Uh, Birds of Prey number 21, Talon versus Talon. Uh, Have you been reading this particular book? Uh, No, I haven't. Okay. So this is another sort of you jump on. Um, Well, it's a good like case study though for you know a new reader how how acceptable is it for a new reader to jump on so i'm i'm interested to hear so writer christy marks pencil romano molinar breakdowns scott mcdaniel inker jonathan glapion and colorist chris sotomayor picking up where the previous issue left off Batgirl and an incapacitated Strix are outside as Talon attacks. As she tries to hold him off in order to let Strix recover, Batgirl wonders why Talon seems to be holding back, perhaps trying not to hurt her. Talon wraps her up with her own cape and shoves her down a stairwell and kicks in the door. So basically, she's out of commission. Talon then goes after Strix, saying that the court has sentenced her to die. She weeps at him, and they both plummet to the ground below, off the side of the building. Elsewhere, still inside the building, Condor takes out the hard drive, hoping to debilitate the owls, while Dinah wonders how she could have trusted Starling. Condor seems to have been there before, but before she can find out more about him, Batgirl radios in, and they both rush to help. Outside, Mary recovers from the fall first, but fights the urge to kill Talon. Talon wakes up and wonders why she let him live. 
It seems he has no choice but to go after Strix because the court has Casey and Sarah, people you would only know about if you read Talon, so don't be worried if you're confused and wonder who these people are. The birds finally come out onto the roof. Condor does a quick air recon. Then Batgirl suggests they split up to search. Strix and Talon are fighting, and Talon wonders why she is so slow. They each get their shots in. Batgirl goes to the ground floor, knows she can't call for Mary since it will give away her position, and Mary can't answer anyway since she's a mute. And she also compares this with Joker uh, taking her mother, and she wonders whether she will be able to make a choice when she finally finds James Jr. again. So again, this issue is happening all before Batgirl number 19, just for people to be aware of that. Dino wants to split up from Condor, but he wants to watch her back. And this comment makes her... Well, puzzled. And Dino wonders what's going on since he didn't want anything to do with them in Japan, but now he doesn't want to leave her. He happens to know her name, and she wonders how much he knows. Apparently, he was also some sort of government agent, and he tells her the death of her husband wasn't her fault. Then, in a very Wild Cards way, Wild Cards from Justice League, uh, Ben, a.k.a. Condor, removes his helmet whispers sweet nothings which also sounds somewhat creepy to her ear and then they kiss uh they break up quickly when they hear some thumping above them and that would be talon and strix continuing to fight talon gets the best of strix but sees her scars and decides she doesn't deserve this so he drops his weapons he explains who casey and sarah are what the court wanted him to do to prove that strix was really destroyed and then strix moves and tells him to follow and this is to be continued in Talon number 9. Uh, so we're not going to review Talon number 9, but I will tell you that uh, they go to the Owl's Lab, which we saw a couple issues ago in Birds of Prey. And Mary and Talon dress up one of the dead bodies that the, the owls were working on and kind of looks like Mary into Mary's costume. They then inject it with the freeze that really does kill a Talon for show. Talon then tells Strix to keep this to herself and to continue the good fight because he doesn't think he can anymore. And then Talon brings a fake Mary to the court and they buy it and burn it. So for all purposes, Mary is dead to the court. And then some other stuff happens with Bane, but we're not interested in that. So that wraps up. So as as a first-time reader of Birds of Prey, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Was this access, accessible to you? Uh, yeah, um, I was. I had read Batman, you know, the first um, couple arcs with the, uh, that one of them had joined, you know, had basically turned good, mm-hmm. um, you know, during the, after, I guess, the Night of Owl storyline. But, you know, at the beginning, I was a little confused on who was good and who, you know, who were we supposed to be rooting for. Um, but, you know, I liked it. I thought it was, the action was well drawn. Uh, it was fluid and you know, went along good, you know, it progressed the story, you know, it actually made me want to read uh, Talon 9 to see where this was going to go to, you know, I thought they explained what was going on well. The only thing I didn't like was um, the Condor and uh, Black Canary kiss. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed a little creepy. (laughs) I agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was like, oh, uh, you haven't ever seen me. Let me take my woman (laughs) off. And then next thing they're kissing, and I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, there's this huge fight going on. I guess we need to see what's going on. You know, it kind of made me um, think a little less of um, this version of Black Canary. Mm-hmm. 
But um, overall, I really enjoyed it. It was definitely a lot better than that girl <laughs> made me. Yeah. So I would give it a, I would give it a definite high grade. Okay. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you about this uh, this Dinah thing. I mean, why doesn't she think he's a creeper when he says he needs to be close to her? <laughs> and then this kiss, I can't tell who initiates it, but it seems like Dinah does, and it just seems very random and out of character. I mean, she basically does not know him, and she did right. she. I mean, a couple issues ago, she didn't even trust him. She thought he was the the traitor to the team. So, uh, I just wonder where it's coming from. I mean, Condor, all of a sudden, we're we're getting his name. We get to see his face. We're finding out he worked for the government, and he knows some stuff about Dinah and Kurt. So, I wonder where this is coming from, why it's coming out now, where is this going, all of this sort of stuff. Talon, I also wonder why this is happening now. Uh, is this just to promote his other book and have a tie, you know, crossover between maybe a popular book with one that is not doing well? I haven't actually looked at numbers. That's sort of something that Dustin over the at uh, the Batman universe does, but we haven't done that in a while. So I don't know how Talon is doing in relationship to Birds of Prey. But at least we get an explanation of why uh, he's gone to marry. But it's difficult for people, I think, who don't read Talon because this could have been the first time that they've ever seen him. And then it says to be continued in the other book, so then they have to pick that up. And really only the first maybe quarter of the book deals with the, the rest of this issue, and then everything else deals with um, what he's going through and then Bane and everything. So it's just rough, I think, for people when you do crossovers and you're trying to get people to buy other books. It's tough. But compared to the other issue, which I really liked, uh, this one wasn't as noteworthy. I'm still enjoying Birds of Prey, but most of this was action. I felt like there was not a lot of dialogue, more narration. Uh, And the narration was significant, but it was pretty basic stuff and not really insightful. I think maybe the most significant and um, informational stuff was occurring between Dinah and Condor. So hopefully we find out what's going on soon with that. But not a 9 out of 10. I'll give it a 7 out of 10 birds uh, for this one. So you give it a high grade. Do you have a number to... Um, I was going to go actually about an 8. Cause, okay. You know, I thought it was, you know, it was easy for me to uh, hop on. Um, you know, I had a few questions, but, you know, it cleared, you know, it was... I could read it. I could understand it. It made me actually want to pick up the next issue um, okay. of Talon. So mm-hmm. in this... Um, you know, I liked Birds of Prey before, uh, you know, the new 52. So, you know, and I'd read the first probably like six issues of this one. And I just, I, I mean, part of it, I liked part of it. Um, I guess I kind of missed Oracle controlling it. Um, so it kind of just went off, but, um, you know, I'm liking this, um, you know, it might be something that I start putting on my pull list. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that this roped in potentially a new new reader. Next up, we have Babs in the Tube.
Remember, this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently and finally, I am watching the 1966 Batman TV series. And this is the final episode, episode 120, season 3, episode 26, Minerva, Mayhem, and Millionaires. That's alliteration. It aired March 14, 1968, starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Zsa Zsa Gabor as Minerva, Yvonne Arnett as Aphrodite, Al Ferreira as Atlas, William Smith as Adonis, Jacques Bergerac as Freddy Touche the Fence, Mark Bailey as Apollo, and George N. Nice as Mr. Schubert. Too bad it's not Sherbert, like the ice cream. Minerva, owner, operator, proprietress of a mineral spa that caters to millionaires, uses her deepest secret extractor to pick the brains of her wealthy customers and to locate their hidden valuables. While Bruce Wayne and another wealthy patron discuss the collection of priceless diamonds in the safe at the Wayne Foundation, Minerva eavesdrops and cleverly swipes Bruce's wristwatch from the locked box in which he places his other valuables. Later, she contacts Bruce by phone and tells him they found his missing timepiece and he will receive a free-of-charge eggplant, jelly, vitamin, scalp massage if he comes to collect it. Arriving at Minerva's spa, Bruce receives the full scalp treatment, including Minerva's deepest secret extractor, with which Minerva uncovers the combination to the Wayne Foundation vault. While Bruce leaves, Minerva receives a call from Lord Easy Street asking her for an appointment. Bruce rushes around the corner to the alley where Robin is waiting in the Batmobile. There he becomes a Cape Crusader, and he and the boy Wonder return to the Sinister Spa. Suspecting the Batman is onto her scheme, Minerva orders her men Adonis and Atlas to put the dynamic duo into her persimmon pressurizers to parboil them. While Batman and Robin are left to cook, Minerva enters the Wayne Foundation vault and swipes the diamonds from within, after which she re-scrambles the combination and has them over to French Freddy, the fence. She returns to discover to her shock that Batman and Robin have escaped with the aid of their steam-neutralizing bat pellets, but she decides to rob Lord Easy Street before skipping town. Greedy, greedy. Later, the Cape Crusader and the Boy Wonder question Minerva at police headquarters, where, of course, she denies the whole thing regarding their attempted murder or any of the robberies. Suspecting that she lied, uh, the Batman sets a trap for her and Barbara Gordon agrees to assist by making sure the true Lord Easy Street fails to keep his appointment at the spa by de- detaining him at the library. She notifies him about a certain book he is searching for, which is finally turned up there. While the ward goes to the Gotham Library, Alfred, who is Easy Street's doppelganger, replaces him and keeps his appointment at Minerva Spa. Here, Minerva prepares to put Alfred under her deepest secret extractor. Meanwhile, the caped crusader learns that the combination to the Wayne Foundation has been tampered with and uses his three-second flat bat vault combination on Scrambler to break inside and uncovers the diamond's theft. He then realizes Alfred is in danger, and along with the boy wonder, he heads back to the spa. Minerva soon learns that Alfred is a phony and tries to discover his real identity, but before she can do so, the Cape Crusaderous Batgirl shows up, only to be immediately nabbed by Adonis and Atlas and placed along with Alfred into the same persimmon pressurizers, which failed to do in the dynamic duo earlier.
Minerva discovers that Freddy the Fence has blown town with the Wayne Diamonds and prepares to follow him, but is blocked by Batman and Robin. She releases Alfred and Batgirl and Six, Adonis, and Atlas on the dynamic trio. During the bat fight, she tries to escape but falls into the waiting hands of Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara, who arrive with Freddy, who was nabbed at Gotham Airport, and to take Minerva and the now subdued Adonis and Atlas into custody. So there ends this season. In another time, perhaps Minerva would have been Poison Ivy. Uh, I, You know, I do really... I'm well. I'm shocked. I guess I, I'm just shocked that Minerva doesn't discover Bruce's ID. Uh, it was really reminiscent of the Batman the Animated Series episode where Doctor Strange figured out his identity. I mean, how can you pinpoint a secret uh, by asking rather than just getting a full list of secrets? I did like the mythology connections. I thought that was great. At first, you know, when Batman and Robin pop in, Minerva doesn't even bat an eyelash. And I thought, well, perhaps she's not really smart. But actually, she may be one of the only villains that caught onto the watch that Bruce talks into and that Batman and Bruce must have some sort of connection. So maybe she was one of the smarter villains. Minerva calls Robin Batman's son, which was interesting, and especially the way that Batman reacted to it, like shocked faces. Uh, he is not my son. 26 episodes later, I'm still wondering why we need to clarify that, yes, Bruce Wayne is, in fact, a billionaire, but why do we need to attach that epithet to him all the time? So this was the final episode. Was it fitting? We end with Robin asking where Batgirl went and Batman says who knows Robin whoever knows. So not the best villain story to go out on but you know what can you do and it, it may not have been planned but again I just wonder you know why not wrap some wonderful show up with I don't know a big reveal as to who is who but I guess we're not going to get that. So you're probably wondering well I'm, I'm done now with this 1966 series so where do I go from here? And the answer, my friends, is the Batman Superman Hour, which aired between 1968 and 1969. Now, I won't be able, well, I won't be doing every single episode, obviously, but those that are highlighted by uh, Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl appearance and of course there are usually like four separate stories in one episode and I will only be highlighting the one that she pops up in but I'll give sort of the layout of of everything but I'm looking forward to starting this should be an interesting experience and then of course I'll hop to a, a 70s show as well so we're just moving along but I guess say a sad farewell to the 1966 series. Do you have any literature recommendations or recommending anything else? Like last episode, we had fan fiction. So if, if you got something like that or other podcasts you listen to. I like all kinds of podcasts. And, you know, I think that I think the podcasting world, you know, it's it's so good because you can, you know, you can listen to different so many different things and you're not my interests vary from you know from comic books to like i said you know i'm a dad so there's a podcast i listen to that uh, deals with in a humorous way dad issues but you know i'm a fan of professional wrestling uh there's you know several podcasts i listen to that so um you know i think that this is um you know i found yours i i think i was losing and one of the things I like to do when I'm, you know, at libraries and archives is uh, listen to something on my iPhone and, you know, podcasts are great. And, you know, sometimes I just like store up a whole bunch 
and just listen to episode after episode, whatever. And yours is, you know, one of those that I always try to have a few so that I can listen oh, to. I just finished um, reading, you know, recently, which is totally non non comic book related though, is the recent history of Marvel Comics. Oh yeah. DC. Mm-hmm. But the um the one that's by Sean uh Howe. Mm-hmm. It was a you know, anyone that's a comic book fan, Marvel or D C, you know, I got it. I enjoyed it. You get to learn not only about why decisions were made about certain things, but, you know, the interaction between the different writers and editors, you know, who had trouble with who, you know, those kind of things. I wish there was one like that for DC because I'd like to see, you know, know some of that kind of information. I think that, and I guess it's probably, I would say, because of, you know, almost the cult of personality of Stanley. You know, people seem to write more about Marvel and all the going-ons. So, you know, I'd like to read more about, like to have people read more DC. And, um, well, one thing I would like to say is that, you know, kind of a shout-out for all the listeners out there. I can't speak um, highly enough of the DC showcase issues that come out, the big collections. You know, some of the Silver Age and Bronze Age stuff, it's just fun reading. You know, I've got a full run of the Legion of Superheroes that they put out. And, um, you know, you can just read them. They're fun. You're thinking, wow, this is just crazy stuff. And, you know, put them back up. So. Cool deal. On the shelf. You cut out a little bit when you said how you found my podcast. I'm always interested oh. to hear how you happened upon um how anyone happens upon it. How how did you say? I think I was searching for just Batman podcasts, and yours came up. And, you know, like I said, I was on and off. You know, I would read Batgirl. You know, I liked, liked her in the TV show. Mm-hmm. As I was saying, my first real Barbara Gordon uh, thing was in The Killing Joke. So, you know, I really didn't. Most of my time, she was Oracle and later. So, yeah, you know. I downloaded it, and I'll give most podcasts a look halfway decent, you know, one or two, you know, just to give it a try. And I really liked the way you brought in the old, the new, mm-hmm. um, and reviewing the TV show. So, Yeah, and you stayed with it even though I had that rough air issue in, like, the first episode. So you are a, a diehard right there if you lasted yeah, the first two. Yeah, um, I think... I can't remember if it was the last episode or the one before where you were, someone said they had listened to all the, you know, episodes. And I'm like, yeah, I've done that. You know, it was great. But, um, you know, I really appreciate not only you, but, you know, a lot of the people that, you know, provide, Mm -hmm. you know, podcasts to us out here. And, you know, I know it's got to be a hard thing to do and got to be disciplined. And, you know, sometimes I feel like, well, why isn't this on time? And then you realize, well, you know, people do have lives and stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> I want my podcast that comes out every Tuesday. Why isn't it out on Tuesday? <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if people say it enough, but, you know, we should definitely, if you can financially support some of these podcasts you like, you know, make sure that the people at least know how much you appreciate it, giving good reviews and dropping emails or whatever. You know, I think a lot of times in the, well, in the comic book community, a lot of people 
just complain about, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, but they never, you know, in, you know, talk about what they do enjoy, mm-hmm. and even the stuff that we don't like, things can change so quickly with a new ride or a new creative team that we should, there's been very few books and stuff that I've just like totally walked away from, you know, it's like, well, if I like the basic premise, I'm hoping somebody good will come along. And I I like Batman. I made it through the Grant Morrison period. I didn't always like it. Well, 75% of the time I didn't understand it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I could realize that he, in most ways, appreciated the character. And, you know, he wanted to do something in his mind that was, you know, a loving tribute to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there are a lot of great podcasts out there, and I definitely agree with you that, you know, send them an email or iTunes review, something like that. So, and thanks. Yeah, thank you for your comments about uh, BTO here. I'm, you know, this is episode 63. <laughs> I can't really imagine, you know, thinking way back when I started it that I'd uh, get this far or you know, have listeners or guest hosts and stuff, so it's pretty surreal. Oh, yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I like your format. I like how, you know, you deal with the older books. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some that podcasts I've listened to where they review older books, but, you know, it's almost like they're making fun of them. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's just, that's the way the comics were back then. Yeah, yep. And, you know, yeah, there are some humorous things, but, you know, you can enjoy them. Yeah, definitely when I started this off, I really had to put myself in a particular mindset for those Silver Age. And it was more difficult in the beginning, but then I really started to get used to it. Uh, And Showcase really did a lot for me, the Showcase back row, which I really recommend. Uh, Somebody recently asked me where they could get a collection of the early back row stories. And I really recommend that because it collects like the first 20 or so issues in direct chronological order, excepting the ones that it's just Barbara Gordon appearance those one random panels but yeah. that's really where to go and at, originally um i feel like i've looked at essentials before i picked up my showcase but d- was sort of turned off because of the black and white but showcase forced me to read this black and white and i i really got used to it and now i have like seven essentials of of x-men and and spider-man so you get used to it, it it's really not that bad of a thing yeah but i yeah and, and um the showcase has opened me to Things that, you know, I may not have, you know, read before, like I found at a used bookstore they had, you know, like Haunted Tank, Army in at War, and, you know, some of those war books that DC put out, and they were, you know, even less than half off, so I bought them, and, you know, those are good reads, and, you know, I had to get Ambush Bug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's, it's a big collection of those, and mm-hmm. we're also lucky that... Our library, I'm here in Florida, our library um, has somebody there in the purchasing section, I guess, who likes comics because we keep up pretty good with the um, trade paperbacks as they come out, the major ones. So. Yeah, my library has some of them. Not a huge stock. They have a lot of manga, actually, but um, not too many trades. But I just came back from San Diego Comic-Con with, like, a huge... <laughs> a lot of well I guess it's not huge but I got several trade paperbacks that was basically my my big expense 
uh, which I'll talk about all those things in my San Diego uh, wrap up in the next episode. But I do love trades. I love just getting that uh, collection in a nice little format rather than single issues sometimes. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, you know, I, I like the floppies. I like the trades. Mm-hmm. Um, I started moving over to digital some. Um, some of the Comixology sales have been tempting, and I've purchased the Superman sale that went along with Man of Steel. Oh, okay. They had like 201 books. You know, I dropped like 30 bucks on stuff that I liked. It's a different way of reading it. I kind of like how you can go from panel to panel, mm-hmm. and it kind of forces me... Sometimes I just skim a book, you know, because you can just sort of, you know, let your eyes go through it and you can see what's happening and you don't, you know, really read. And this kind of forces you to see, read, and, you know, you know, follow the progression of what it's supposed to be. So, you know, I'm, I'm starting to like that. I guess I'm a little old school, though. I like to have something in my hand. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. Yep. Do you have a tablet to read your digital comics on? Or do you read yeah, them on the computer? Uh, I use the Kindle. Okay. I did, um, even though this is a DC thing, I did subscribe to the Marvel uh, Unlimited, where mm-hmm. there's like 14,000 old Marvel back issues yeah. you can read. yep. You know, I've read a bunch on that, but, you know, I get kind of overwhelmed because there's so many things I want to read. And I know. So I wish DC would you know, do something like that, so then I can definitely have no time to myself. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had my first experience with a Kindle, and reading a comic on a Kindle at, at San Diego Comic-Con where I read uh, some Walking Dead, and uh, my friend was telling me that he likes the panel-by-panel because if there's, like, something at the bottom of the page that's maybe, like, a, a spoiler or a big event, then it won't be spoiled for you if you, you see the full yeah. page. And that's a, yeah, that's another thing. It, yeah. yeah, it hides things that, so that's good. Yeah. And, you know, the color is good, everything. Mm-hmm. I do miss the older books, you know, how you would have the cheesy ads and everything. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times, I guess, I don't think digital comics now even have any of those ads or anything. Now that I think about it, you know, even like the ads that are in normal comics. Yeah. So that's one thing that I kind of miss. I guess there's all the issues on, you know, protected copyright protections and all those and being able to trade because, you know, I can't, you know, trade with one of my friends and just be like, hey, you want to read some good, read this. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. But And I'm a big proponent of comic book shops where we used to live in South Carolina and Charleston and the comic book shop there, Captain's Comics was the best. I would take my son when he was one all the way up to six, and the, I knew him. He would he had a little place that he would just sit down, and they had some little toys that he would play with, and he knew all the superheroes, you know, even obscure things, and it'd be funny because, you know, someone would come in, and they'd, be, you know, they'd say, Cameron, what do you think of Aztec? And he would say something about him, and, you know, it was like, it was the atmosphere, and, you know, it was fun, you know, when you go there, someone's like, hey, you need to read this, or we don't really get that um, when you're buying stuff online or, yeah. you know, at the regular store, and that's one thing I think that podcasts help with is you feel, you get those recommendations. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been 
I listened to major spoilers and they turned me on to several books that I would have never even thought of picking up, you know, and just been like, okay, that sounds halfway funny, a good story. And you pick it up and you're like, this is good. You know, to me, not having access to a like that, you know, I find the podcast is a way to, you know, continue communicating with the, you know, people in the comic book community. So. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, I've got two literature recommendations. One is an actual book, and one is a a comic or a series that I've lately been turned on to. So the book is The Screw Tape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis. This is wildly different, I think, than uh, something else or others that I've recommended. So this came out in 1942. Hopefully you people know who C.S. Lewis is, you know, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, among other things. So it's a, a satirical Christian apologetic novel, uh, and it's written in epistolary style, which means it's written, written uh, in letter format. And basically, it's a series of letters you've got written by uh, a demon, Screwtape, to his nephew, another demon, Wormwood. And he basically, the uncle gives a lot of advice to his nephew uh, just to secure the damnation of a British man that we come to know as the patient throughout this book. And, uh, well, it was very interesting and insightful. Now, if you're looking to read a, a Christian novel, you have to come at it at a different viewpoint, not as um, these are the things I need to do, but these are the things that you don't need to do because basically the the demons are highlighting sort of the, the temptations and failings of, of these particular people. In the end, the patient, spoiler, the patient dies and he goes to heaven. So the nephew did, he failed. And uh, the uncle says that, you know, he'll be a tasty creature. So I guess that's what happens. They get eaten if they don't pass. Uh, but it was, there were some really funny notes because the nephew tries to turn the uncle in at one point and the uncle gets really upset and and starts yelling at him but it's all from the uncle's point of view but it was very interesting it just took me a couple letters to really get in the mindset of okay we're this is like the demon's perspective so focus on that so if you're interested in something like that but i know um all of my listeners may not be uh christian so i don't want to you know force that down your throat so i've got another thing to uh to balance it out and that's uh teenage mutant ninja turtles the new ongoing from IDW. I've recently, for whatever reason, sort of had a hankering of, of getting into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles again. I used to watch the the 80s show when it was on, and I thought about watching it again. So I decided to try the Nickelodeon series, and it was okay, but now I've started to gradually like it. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to try this new ongoing they have, and I got the three trades for a pretty good deal. I got them for $30 on eBay, and I really liked them. I thought it was really different how they, they started off where Raphael is missing, and he doesn't know what has happened. But if you're a Turtle fan, and it's written by Eastman, who was the basically the creator of them, he keeps everything intact just like, you know, it was supposed to be, but it's a, it's a different way of looking at it. It, so I do recommend that. At San Diego, I got the two micro series and then volume four, which I have all of those I have yet to read. But uh, I'm looking to continue on, so they're fun. And if you're looking into trying something new from a different publisher that's not DC or Marvel, then I suggest that. Yeah, IDW does some really good stuff. And um, they seem to let you know creators go with these mm-hmm. you know, products from the 80s and you know, keep enough of it so that it doesn't feel like something totally different, but still can, you know, not just give any rehashing of yeah. 
So. Exactly. Uh, I, I just found out at San Diego that, and I guess it was announced before, but their IDW is also going to be doing a Samurai Jack ongoing that's going to continue uh, from the TV series where that ended off. Remember, that poor Samurai Jack is this time-displaced uh, samurai, and even in the last issue with the baby, he's still a time-displaced uh, samurai, so we have no idea what's going on. So uh, I'm definitely going to pick that up to see where that journey continues, and I'm ever hopeful that the movie will come out and, and wrap up all threads. Well, Ed, it has been a pleasure to have you on i'm so happy that you could come on and and review and it was great to have a quote newcomer end quote to backroll and birds of prey even though backroll you had read before but it was great to have a different perspective of someone who hasn't been reading them uh the entire time to just get that uh sort of viewpoint well thanks for having me i've really enjoyed it and um you know thanks for putting out the mod player rambling <laughs> but um you know i'm really enjoying it and you know i'm I'm hoping that we get, you know, we get some background pretty soon that isn't, you know, so dark and <laughs> confusing and everything and that we get some, you know, we get some fun. And where's Stephanie Brown, I keep yeah, wanting to say. Exactly. Where is she? Yep. Well, thanks again. And well, thanks. Yeah. Good luck with your future podcast. Thank you. Well, I teased it on Facebook, and in fact, the news segment is Reading with Stella. presents Batgirl to Dare the Darkness by Doug Mensch, a story taking place in the Batman and Robin the Movie universe. Copyright 1997, Little, Brown, and Company, New York. Chapter 1, Mystery Chips. The edge of the city was a good place to fight crime. The rotting docks and sagging piers of the Gotham wharves formed a bleak bulwark against the black waters of the bay. A mournful foghorn moaned through distant mist. Then the night fell silent, save for unseen splashings against posts and pilings that creaked and groaned and seemed to sigh. It was a nasty place at night, with the sure sense that anything could happen. The fog-blurred moon hung low and nearly full, but with no hint of magic, no romance. Even the shadows seemed sinister, dirty, and rough with the grit of black sandpaper. Crouched in those shadows behind stacks of off-loaded crates was a young woman. Her name was Barbara Wilson. 
But that was not who she was now, not at night. Caped and clad in a tight, dark costume designed to strike fear in the hearts of criminals, she was an avenging creature of the night. She was Batgirl, or at least she hoped she was. Still a rookie in this hero game, she knew she had to perform like a veteran. There was no room for mistakes in life or death situations. Her partners were waiting nearby, depending on her. Smugglers were coming, and they were intent on feeding the city their cargo, its nature unknown but illicit. The police informants tipped said they were rough men who would rather fight than surrender. Just thinking about it made her heart begin to pound. Crime was coming, but suddenly she did not feel like a creature of the night. She felt like a frightened child and hated herself for it. The night had begun so well. Donning her dark costume, she had swelled with confidence, eager to fight the good fight, and ready to conquer all comers. But now she caught her breath, suddenly aware of the hum of an engine, startlingly clear as it carried across the water. It grew louder until the dark shape of a small ship loomed from the fog. No running lights. This was a secret docking. The engine coughed and died. Suddenly, the ship scudded the last 50 yards before gently bumping the dock. Barbara realized she was still holding her breath. She wet it out slowly, lips parted, careful to make no sound. She peered around the edge of a crate. A large man jumped from ship's prow to wharf's planks with a loud thump. A rope was tossed to him. He wrapped it around a mooring cleat, then moved down the wharf to the rear of the ship, and did the same with the second tossed rope. The vessel was secured. Barbara's heart pounded harder. No, she thought. It's Batgirl's heart, and that heart must be strong and fierce and always under control. She stared across the dark waters past the ship, focusing on the moon, concentrating on its brightness. She let it fill her eyes and her mind, using its light to center her soul and calm her emotions. It was so much easier when the action exploded without warning, when there was nothing to do but react. This waiting game was different. It was, in fact, excruciating. There was too much suspense, too much time to think. Gruff voices muttered from the ship, the words impossible to make out. A plank was lowered to the dock. Other men clumped down the plank, each carrying a crate. Two of them, four, six, and more still to come. This was it, the point of no return. Tensing every muscle in her body, Barbara focused and set her mind, willing her heart to slow its beat. Then she surged from her cover and broke into a full sprint, determined to be first into the fray. But she was already too late. A dark shape was dropping from the arm of a loading crane, its cape snapping and fluttering like the wings of a giant bat. The figure landed facing the stunned smugglers. It was the Batman, a true creature of the night, and his voice grated like flint on tombstone. Drop the crates and stand back with your hands on your heads. The smugglers stood like statues fused to the dock. Even Barbara, who had known where Batman was stationed, was stopping in her tracks by the effect of his entrance. Talk about striking fear. One crate crashed to the dock, followed by the others. The smugglers were dropping them as ordered, but their hands were not going slowly to their heads. They had fight, or flight, in mind. Maybe both, but not surrender. Then there was a confusion of quick movement, and something glinted in the moonlight. A gun. Barbara grabbed at her belt, reaching for a battering, but again she was too late. Batman's hand had already whipped from the folds of his cloak. His battering smacked the gun even as it discharged, and the blast was forced harmlessly high with not a second to spare. No doubt about it, Barbara thought. I've still got a lot to learn. Then Robin, Batman's other partner, was swooping into view, a blur of red, green, and gold swinging on a clinking chain, kicking away a second gun Barbara hadn't even noticed. Guns were always first priority, she knew. Avoid them or eliminate them. 
It was Batman's cardinal rule, drummed into her head every day during training. Their costumes were reinforced with bulletproof Kevlar, but a point-blank shot could still do damage. Batman despised guns, a hatred tracing to the murder of his parents. Indeed, it was that traumatic event which had turned Bruce Wayne into the Batman. He was a dark fury now, doing battle with five of the smugglers, and even at those odds it was no contest. Robin had dropped from his chain onto two other criminals, leaving one unaccounted for on the dock and maybe more still aboard the ship. Barbara scanned the melee and spied the first smuggler kneeling over the aft mooring cleat, unwinding the rope in a bid to escape. She moved swiftly in his direction. He sensed her rush, rising and turning to meet it, but Barbara's fist smashed into his face before he fully knew what was coming. The man staggered back, and Barbara clutched her fist as pain shot up her arm. Even though she had felt the sting before, it still shocked her. But it also made the situation real. She shook off the pain, knowing that a threshold had been instantly crossed, that the warrior spirit of Batgirl was claiming her heart. With her other hand, she slashed a chop to the dazed man's neck and vaulted aboard the ship even as he fell. The ship swayed gently under her feet. She adjusted her balance, finding the rhythm of the bay's lapping swells. This was better now. The pain in her hand had faded and her blood was high. The action had begun and there was no room for fear, no place for Barbara Wilson. She was Batgirl now, and she felt at one with the night. She was a predator, preying on evil. Holding perfectly still, every sense attuned, Batgirl peered into the ship's gloom and shadows. Batman and Robin were still battling on the dock, but she knew there might be more men here on the ship. Were they hiding? And if so, where? She heard a slight sound and glimpsed movement beyond the ship's housing, up on the forward deck. It seemed like a single figure, but she couldn't be certain. Silently, she crept along the ship's rail, past the housing. There he was, not moving, masquerading as a shadow, hoping she wouldn't notice his human shape, hoping she would venture close enough for him to strike without warning. Batgirl stopped and spoke to the shadow. Give it up! Now! The shadow moved, becoming a large, rough man with less than a full set of teeth displayed in a sneer. He flicked his fingers at his chest and laughed with a growl. Just a girl, and you think you can take me? Come on, girly, let's dance. Batgirl's eyes glittered her lips forming a mirthless smile. She started to move forward but froze as a second smuggler stepped from the gloom, a long boat hook extending from his gnarled hands. Then there were sounds from the rear, two more men coming from below deck, emerging from the ship's housing, both armed with clubs. Batgirl bent her knees into a slight crouch, keeping her weight centered but light on the balls of her feet. She slipped a batarang from her belt and held it loosely, ready to snap it like a truncheon. The unarmed smuggler spoke. How eager are you now, girly? My dance card's still open, handsome. But since I seem to be surrounded at all four corners, let's make it a square dance. She flicked her eyes from one smuggler to the next, then back again, searching for the first lunge. But as one, all four started closing in, slowly. Something hurtled over the heads of two of the smugglers, and suddenly Robin was at Batgirl's side. He flashed a lopsided grin, set his back to hers, and said, Need some help? Not really, she bluffed. There's only four of them, and just three are armed. No need to get greedy, said Robin. That still leaves two for each of us. Abruptly, the smugglers rushed inward. Batgirl sidestepped the unarmed man and angled a high kick to meet the downward slash of the boat hook. It split in half across the bottom of her boot. Robin leaped high, scissoring his legs outward to kick the chins of both club wielders at the same time. Batgirl spun away to face the unarmed thug, snapping her batarang to the back of his neck. She hit the nerve center perfectly and the man went down as dead weight. His sneer wiped slack even before his face hit the deck. Lost a few more teeth, did we? said Batgirl.
She turned back to the man with the broken boat hook just as he swung the splintered remnant of his stick. Her hands shot out, caught the pole with a sharp smack, and stopped it cold. Then she yanked hard, jerking the man off balance and right into a kick to his gut. He doubled over as the breath left his body. Then he grunted and sat down hard, staring up at Batgirl. His eyes glazed over and slowly closed. Then he pitched over sideways. Batgirl cast the broken pole away and turned to look back over her shoulder. The two club wielders were also sprawled on the deck. Robin was making a show of dusting his gloved hands, a huge grin beaming below his domino mask. Batgirl grinned back at him and they slapped high fives. Ahar, me mateys, said Robin in the raspy voice of a movie pirate. Me thinks the booty be ours. Flushed with triumph, Batgirl joined in. And these four swabs never even walked the plank. Robin punched her shoulder and she punched his right back. They clapped arms around each other and laughed. The moonlight was abruptly eclipsed, casting them into deep shadow. Their laughter died as they looked up to see a cloaked figure standing atop the ship's housing, looming over them like a giant, the Batman. He was staring down at them, but was he glowering? It was impossible to tell. He was all darkness, a long cape with tall, sharp ears. The eerie wail of sirens ripped the night. Batgirl and Robin turned to see the spinning lights of marked and unmarked police cars screeching onto the dock. From above and behind them, a deep voice intoned, It's not a game. They turned back. There was the moon again. Batman was gone. Police Commissioner James Gordon stepped from his unmarked car onto the warped planks of the dock. He removed his hat to run a hand through silver hair. He looked haggard and haunted, showing the effects of too many long nights in a city where every night is long. Batman stepped from the shadows. Good work, the commissioner said, as usual. The Batman nodded, but said nothing. Commissioner Gordon turned to Robin. You too, Sean. Any time, commish. Gordon then turned to his uniformed police officers. They were using crowbars to open the smuggler's crates. Not a word to me, thought Batgirl. He didn't even look in my direction. True, she was hanging back, keeping her distance ever since Batman's reprimand, but still, did Commissioner Gordon think she was nothing more than decoration? Some kind of team mascot? The slight truly stung, far more than that first punch. I held my own during this operation, and then some. If he can't see... Vegetables, Commissioner! It was one of the police officers, hunched over an open crate. Nothing but vegetables! Vegetables! Lettuce, the officer shrugged. Cabbage, stuff like that. Now Gordon was actually irritated. No one smuggles lettuce. Batman upended a crate, bouncing heads of cabbage across the dock. His gauntleted hand probed inside the empty crate. False bottom. He dashed the crate to the dock. The bottom shattered, and out skittered dozens of small, identical items. They looked like square buttons glittering in the moonlight. Batman slowly turned one of them between thumb and forefinger, catching the dim light to examine it from every angle. Silicon chips, he announced. Miniature electronic circuits. Gordon stepped forward for a closer look. They're smuggling stolen computer parts? I don't think so, Commissioner. These chips are like none I've ever seen. Extremely unusual design. I think they're custom made. But for what? Gordon was genuinely puzzled. Our informant claimed these smugglers have been making monthly runs into Gotham. What's so valuable about these chips? What are they? Until I found out, Commissioner, they're nothing. Batman slipped several of them into a container on his utility belt. Then he looked up into the dark distance, his masked face grim. Nothing but... Mystery chips. To be continued. Remember to send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. Once again, thanks 
to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for Minerva, Mayhem, and Millionaires. Stay tuned later this month, August most likely, number one for the August episode, uh, but before that for the San Diego Comic-Con wrap-up, uh, complete with many different interviews and just sort of a play-by-play on things that happened. And thanks again to Ed for co-hosting, and we'll have one more co-host this summer, so you can check that out in August. Well, until next time, hopefully I see you. Uh, if you don't hear from me ever again, then I met my demise uh, at the Tough Mudder, but I'm hoping and praying that I survive and I make it through everything. So until next time, get muddy. All you tough mutters out there, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! I love a happy ending, don't you?